You are listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 30 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today we're going to be talking about one of the turn-of-the-century greats, Sergei Rachmaninoff. He's a fantastic late Romantic Russian composer, and his style is pretty unique. At once, it is worldly and modern, but it's also very classic Russian with its grand and sometimes foreboding force. Sergei Rachmaninoff's family had once been quite wealthy and had many estates within Russia. However, his father, poor at money management, eventually ended up selling all of them. Now, this was fortunate in the end, though, as the family then moved to St. Petersburg, where the young Rachmaninoff began his schooling at the St. Petersburg Conservatory on scholarship in 1882. However, Sergei was a very poor student, feeling that he wasn't actually being challenged enough, and thus he spent more time skating than studying. Because of this, he failed all of his studies except music, and this unfortunately caused him to lose his scholarship, and continued family strains made it impossible for him to continue in St. Petersburg. However, he was recommended by a cousin to be shaped up at the Moscow Conservatory instead. At the Moscow Conservatory, his teachers were incredibly strict, and his studies were intense. However, he also had the privilege to meet some of the most famous Russian musicians of the time, including everyone's favorite, Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Now, despite these opportunities, Rachmaninoff still felt oppressed by his tutelage, and after a nasty spat, he was dismissed from the house he lived in in Moscow. Rather than return to his family in St. Petersburg, though, he remained in Moscow with his friends and productively worked on his compositions of songs, piano works, and string quartets. He rediscovered a love of nature that he had as a child through his travels to a family member's country estate in Ivanovka. He would return here many times over the years for the peace and quiet it brought to work on his compositions. With this new musical outlook, Rachmaninoff actually passed his piano performance test from the conservatory a year early, and with honors nonetheless, and he then began work on his first piano concerto and an opera to be titled Eleko, and this was well received by his composition professors during his composition examinations. Upon his official conservatory graduation in 1892, the once young and willful Rachmaninoff had won the Great Gold Medal, which is a high honor as it was not a yearly award, but only given when a pupil truly deserved it. Right after his graduation, Rachmaninoff entered into a publishing contract with Gutiel and wrote one of his most enduring pieces, The Piano Prelude in C-Sharp Minor. His opera Aleko was also premiered in 1893, and Tchaikovsky heartily approved of the work. Rachmaninoff composed many successful small works, and in 1895 he began work on his first symphony, which was premiered in 1897, with another musical celebrity in attendance, this time as the conductor Alexander Glazunov. The reception to his first symphony was awful. (laughs) 
Rachmaninoff blamed the flaw partly on Glazunov, claiming he, quote, feels nothing when he conducts. After the symphonic failure, Rachmaninoff seemed to hit a wall on the composition front, and for three years he seemed to listlessly begin compositions, but nothing really came of any of them. However, he found a new musical task by being engaged to the Moscow Private Russian Opera as their conductor in 1897, and the critics loved him and claimed that, unlike Glazunov, he was, quote, astonishingly fresh. This conducting position led to further fame for Rachmaninoff, and he began to enjoy fame outside of Russia as well, with a conducting and performing debut in London in 1899, where his interpretive style and appealing music were highly praised. Sadly, in spite of his conducting success, he was still lacking inspiration for any meaningful new composition, and some of his friends actually set up interventions for him and introduced him to inspirational Russian figures such as Lev Tolstoy, and eventually Rachmaninoff set up appointments for himself to meet with a Dr. Nikolai Dahl, who was a therapist, and gradually regained his compositional muster. He was able to now work on excerpts from a new opera to be titled Francesca di Rimini, and also his grand and now immensely popular Second Piano Concerto. A premiere of this completed piano work was given in 1901, and it seemed that this success heralded in a new era of drive for Rachmaninoff on the compositional front. Other things were looking up as well. Later that year, in 1901, he married Natalia Satina, and as a wedding gift, the couple got a house on Rachmaninoff's beloved pastoral Escape of Ivanovka. And by 1903, he had settled back into the groove of composing, and was focusing on opera. He entered into a contract with the Bolshoi Opera Company to conduct for two seasons, and his opera Francesca di Rimini and also his Miserly Night Opera were eventually to be premiered there. In 1906, they finally were, but soon after these premieres, political unrest inspired Rachmaninoff to resign from his conducting position. He left for Italy for a time, then returned to Russia due to his daughter's health. He found the political atmosphere to be still unquiet and finally settled on moving his family to Dresden, Germany. And it was here in this self-imposed exile from his country that Rachmaninoff composed his second symphony, and also a piano sonata in his haunting Isle of the Dead. He did, however, still take some holidays to his country house in Russia. In 1909, armed with Piano Concerto No. 3, Rachmaninoff went on tour in America. Unfortunately, he had a bad time on tour and decided not to do that again. He retreated to his Russian countryside and put out large outpouring of works, including preludes, etudes, songs, and more sonatas. Like all composers during this time, and practically everybody, Rachmaninoff was touched by the war. In 1914, he was on tour giving concerts for the war effort, and upon returning home in 1917, he found the rampant political unrest of Russia had led to vandalism of his house and attempted to get a visa to leave, but for the time being, he could not. However, happily, a concert engagement in Stockholm, Sweden came up, and he and his family traveled there. While they were away, their house was set on fire and destroyed, but it was just as well, because this allowed Rachmaninoff to live abroad, eventually settling in Copenhagen. However, finding work at this time was tough. He sent out feelers to England, but nothing came of them. However, he did get offers to journey once again to America. 
Begrudgingly, he accepted and the family now moved to New York. With the house Rachmaninoff found there, he created his own personal Russian bubble. The family spoke Russian while at home, all the servants were Russian, they made Russian friends, and the Russian customs were strongly upheld. But he didn't neglect his American audiences. Within the first four months of him being in America, he gave 40 concerts. Understandably growing weary of the concert <laughs> rounds, in 1925, Rachmaninoff completely cleared his schedule for nine months. And this allowed him to get back to composition, and he produced a fourth piano concerto. It received less than shining reviews, and in the end, he did remove it from the public eye. Now, while it seems that most of Rachmaninoff's life was free of politics, as he had just moved if things got gnarly, he did actually care about what was going on in his beloved home, Russia. In 1931, he made a statement in the New York Times that condemned the Soviets. Well, as you might imagine, this didn't go over well with the new Russian communist government. And while he was safe on American soil, they did away with him as best they could by banning performances of his works. So though he was, for the most part, happily settled in America now, Rachmaninoff did yearn for Europe. And so he built a vacation home in Switzerland on Lake Lucerne, which was an idyllic escape indeed. Towards the end of the 1930s, Rachmaninoff was still touring almost every concert season, and it was taking quite a toll on his health. He had arthritis and chronic fatigue, which, as you can imagine, would not be good for a piano performer or conductor, and in 1943, a doctor diagnosed him with pleurisy while he was on tour. But Rachmaninoff insisted that the show must go on. He gave a final concert in Knoxville, Tennessee, but afterward, his family convinced him he had to go home which by now had moved from New York to Los Angeles. It was found he was suffering from cancer, and he died in March of 1943. Though he was buried in New York, a memorial was established for him later, back in Russia at his dear estate of Ivanovka. So the piece of Rachmaninoff's that we're going to talk about today is the third movement of his Grand Symphony Number no. 2. So Rachmaninoff is a bit of a musical enigma. His style is modeled very much after the mighty handful in Russia that came before him with their massive Russian sound presence, but he also took strong cues from Tchaikovsky and the Western European Romantic tradition. And also, don't forget, he was a modern romantic at heart and was said to wear his heart on his sleeve in many of his compositions. This third movement, featuring one of the most well-known melodies of all time, really takes that display of heart to the extreme. So let's first take a look at this iconic melody, or rather it's actually a set of two. The first is somewhat of an introduction in the strings. Now, if you think that sounds familiar, it might be because you've heard Eric Carmen's song, Never Gonna Fall In Love Again, that quoted this melody so strongly, he was forced to pay royalties to the Rachmaninoff estate for its use. Now, this melody dissolves into one of the longer clarinet solos to be found in the orchestral repertoire, and also one of the loveliest.
The contour of this melody is interesting. Rachmaninoff has actually written very little movement, but what twiddles and twirls there are simply undulate around the longer sustained notes. However, through harmony with the strings, we still have a great amount of tension built and nearly released. As the clarinet fades away and the strings finish the phrase off, the rest of the orchestra starts up a new musical comment. Now, Rachmaninoff Symphony didn't have a programmatic story per se, but Rachmaninoff obviously felt very strongly about something while writing it. Recall that this symphony was written in a tumultuous time in his life while living in Dresden, only going to Russia on holidays due to the political uncertainty, and the themes in this movement may be quasi-biographical about how he was feeling about the whole arrangement. Dresden, as he liked it, was peaceful and quiet, but he still had fond feelings for his motherland of Russia, as we hear with the first themes. However, the political unrest in Russia made him uneasy. His own musical future may even have seemed cloudy, and as we know, this being 1906 during the composition, the world would soon erupt in war. And so, this kind of timidness and scaredness is heard with a more minor and timid theme that seems to just tiptoe forward. However, he regains confidence with a lush string response that is very reminiscent of Tchaikovsky. When people think of the music of Sergei Rachmaninoff, usually what comes to mind are his aforementioned soaring and exquisite melodies. But people often forget that he was actually the star pupil upon his conservatory graduation, and therefore very good at counterpoint. Now this was not so much Baroque counterpoint, but we do here have excellent examples of him interweaving melodies and even producing quasi-fugues. He was particularly fond of an orchestration technique of always having some sort of moving line going on. So, when the four melody would have a long and sustained note, the background accompaniment would shine through with little waves of notes. And this is heard here in one of the theme restatements in the violins, with the woodwinds always filling the space in the background. just a little later, we hear what is more fugue-like or more like a round. The first violins start off with a melody, and then the second violins follow just a beat later, playing the same melody. 
and this offset gives an almost rolling call-and-response sort of feel. Now, up until this point, most of the movement has been fairly tame, without using the full force of the orchestra. However, Rachmaninoff begins to build to the central apex of the movement with a series of ever-higher sequences of his theme. And finally, after about two minutes of sequences and modulations, Rachmaninoff gives us a downward chord progression featuring many diminished chords to bring us to a resolution and the grandest and the most fully orchestrated statement of the theme. This once romantic and tranquil melody has become triumphant and glorious. After this grand statement, Rachmaninoff takes the traditional symphonic sonata form to heart, although it's uncommon for a middle movement like this, but nonetheless he gives us a development section on his themes. So in a symphony by Mozart or Beethoven, the development section takes one of the main themes and runs it through different keys, makes it major or minor, and generally explores all that it has to offer. Rachmaninoff does this by also using different keys, but he also explores the themes using different instrument timbres. So he starts out with the mournful French horn, and then follows it up with the sweet violin with clarinet accompaniment. Then we get mysterious with the English horn, followed by the pristine flute. And finally, we have the subdued oboe, followed by the clarinet, which is to reflect the opening solo. The end of this movement is very long, taking over five minutes to really wrap itself up, but let's just take a quick look at the very end of this piece. The melody has wound down by this time and essentially disappeared. All that's left is the always undulating background heard here in the strings. Like a music box coming to a stop, the rhythm and tempo also gradually get slower. Then we get one more drowsy statement of the theme in the low strings. And this actually quite reminds me of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker as the guests are leaving and the children are going to bed. Finally, the movement comes to a graceful resolution after a little viola tagline over a lovely sustained A major chord. 
that evaporates into the recesses of the concert hall. So as you can hear, this movement is really spectacular and ends with this great ethereal resolution. And also, it has those fantastic melodies that can permeate both the symphonic literature as well as pop culture. And that's something that is really great about Rachmaninoff, is that he writes melodies that people can leave the concert hall singing and it makes you feel things. I think we've mentioned something like that before, how in a lot of Russian music, if they don't quote Russian or Ukrainian folk songs directly, they sort of invent their own melodies, their own folk melodies that evoke the same ideals, the same Russian pastoral ideals. And I think Barkmaninoff does that extremely well in this symphony because it's something that I can leave singing. <laughs> so thank you for joining us on episode 30 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast for this Rachmaninoff discussion. If you enjoy what we do here on the podcast, please consider writing us a review on iTunes or Google Play and letting your friends know. Spread the word, spread the music. So for the Coffee House Podcast, I'm Allison. And I'm Asa. Thank you so much for listening. Rachmaninoff Symphony No. 2, Movements 2 and 3 were performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra conducted by Barbara Schubert. Piano Concerto No. 1, Movement 1 was performed by Neil O'Donne with the University of Washington Symphony conducted by Robert Feist. The Prelude in C-sharp minor was performed by Peter Bradley Fugoni. The Piano Concerto No. 2, Movement 2 was performed by the Skidmore College Orchestra conducted by Anthony Holland. Remember to check out The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play and like our Facebook page to share with your friends. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.